So for people that are unfamiliar with um, what this chant is about, before I give a Dhamma talk, um, it's customary in this tradition to do this little chant, and it's a way of, of signaling to you as well as to myself that this is not just a kind of time for chit-chat. You know, the taking the refuges in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and, and aligning oneself with that is a way of remembering that, um, you know, this is a, 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 a very precious opportunity. So uh, when, I, when I do this, this is a way of, of uh, letting you know as well as letting me know that this is an opportunity to talk about that which conduces to the heart awakening rather than to get invested in you know, personal views and opinions and stories that are take one away from that journey. And so the invitation is to listen inwardly and let your attention be very still focused on your own body and heart responses because when you do that, then you have a real sense if what you hear is in resonance with your own understanding. And, uh, and also you can know if there's something that I say that's not either something that you resonate with or something that is in line with your own understanding. So it's always the case whenever a Dhamma talk is offered that it's an invitation to open up and to respond, to listen. And if what is said makes sense, then you know that it makes sense because your own internal body-heart mechanism will signal that to yourself. If it doesn't make sense or there's no resonance, there's absolutely no need to do anything with it other than just let it go. But I speak extemporaneously. I don't plan talks. And sometimes it can happen that my own personal material comes through in a way which takes one away from the process of waking up or is actually not in accordance with the truth. And if that ever is the case, then I really would feel most... Um, heartened if at some point you come to me and talk to me about it. So rather than just let it go um, or don't pay any attention to it, to bring it up. And in that way what we do is we create a sacred container where awakening is the is the basis why we're all here and what this is about. And we support each other in that. So it's a mutual process. So I wanted to spend tonight talking about the Four Noble Truths. And part of the reason why I wanted to talk about the Four Noble Truths is because um, we're soon approaching a sala puja. A sala, um, a sala puja is the is the is the celebration that commemorates the first time that the four noble truths were given as a discourse, and it also is the time when the traditionally the vasa season begins and the monks and the nuns make a commitment to stay in one place for three months. So the on the twenty sixth of July is when the full moon is when this celebration will take place. So, you know, within all or all spiritual traditions that I know about, there's a lot of commonality in the sense of a set of a of an appreciation of um, of uh, kindness, of respect, of integrity, of uh, generosity. 
of the need for uh, settling the heart and mind. Um, I think this is a common theme that we can find in world traditions everywhere. This is not, nobody's got a monopoly on kindness. And nobody has a monopoly on on uh, generosity or on integrity or on the value of being able to still oneself and go inward and feel what was happening. Okay, But there are some um, teachings that come through the Buddhist tradition which are unique and are not shared by the other traditions. And one of them is the Four Noble Truths. So the teachings of the Four Noble Truths is one of the delineations of, of the Buddhist teaching and the Buddhist tradition that is distinct and different from the others. And so if one has an affinity with this tradition, it's one helpful to understand what that distinction is and to get a sense of how to use it, not just as an intellectual concept, but as a practice uh, to work with what is arising. So I thought tonight and the next Saturday and then on the talk on uh, the Sala Puja itself to go into more depth with the Four Noble Truths and what it means, how to work with it, and how it actually relates to our own lives and our own practice and what we're experiencing. So as a kind of preliminary, if we backstep a little bit and just look at the Buddha's life story, you know, the Buddha was born with parents. You know, he came into the world as a human being. He had a body. You know, he had a family. He needed to eat. You know, he had to deal with the kind of basic stuff that all of us have to deal with. And he was born into a family of privilege, so he was the son of a king and a queen, and he was heir to the throne. And so, you know, I don't know your own personal circumstances, but I would gesture to conjecture that none of us have quite that kind of a situation. But for me, it's always helpful to look at his situation Because there are times when I have if-only fantasies, you know. If only I had more this or more that. You know, if only the family situation was different or the community situation was different. If only my fantasy was fulfilled, then I would be happy. And then when I have that in juxtaposition with what the Buddha's life story was, it's very revealing to me. Because in terms of the way things are set up, he had about as much as anyone could hope for in terms of a loving family, in terms of privilege, in terms of opportunity, in terms of access to education and to uh, uh, like the best that was happening, he had access to it. He was talented, he was gifted, he was healthy, he was well-loved, and he had everything that was going at that time. And so, you know, oftentimes we can have this kind of a little place in ourself, or maybe sometimes it's a big place, that if only, if only I was healthy, or if only I was, uh, you know, I had all, whatever it was that I needed, or a family, or uh, something, then that would be the thing that would do it for me. And so he had, oftentimes, the list that we are unconsciously or consciously hankering for, and yet, even in spite of that, he said, this is actually not where happiness is to be found. And so it was a very deliberate and conscious choosing to move away from what he had and search for something that was more fulfilling. And the reason or the motivation that is traditionally stated in the Theravadan scriptures is is that it was the contact with old age, sickness, and death that was really activating to him because he realized that he had no power over those. And not only did he have no power over those for himself, 
but he had no power over those for the people that he loved the most. So as much intelligence and power and privilege and access to wealth that he had, he had no power over these basic human things that we all have to deal with. Now, I was, um, just yesterday I was invited to, um, over to a person's house, and she spent some time in Crestone. And she told me something that I didn't know before, which is that Crestone has unusual laws in this country about death and burials. And that basically, if you make an application, you can do pretty much whatever it is that you want. And in Crestone, there's a, a extended spiritual community there. And there's many, many different Buddhist monasteries and temples and centers and retreat centers there. And somebody has made an, um, an open-air crematorium where a body is just burned like they do in Asia. And what Carol was saying was is that this is something that has really connected the whole Buddhist community because with all of the differences in philosophy and tradition and practice and ritual and ways of approaching meditation and things that you believe and things that you value, you know, all of us can relate to each other in the fact that when we die or when somebody that we know or we love dies, that's something that we can all feel. So this open-air crematorium is the one thing that unites the entire Buddhist community up in Cresta. And I thought, you know, actually that's the truth. Death is one of the things that holds us all together because no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what our background experiences or our history, that's something that we will share in common. And not only with other human beings, but with everything that is alive. So it's a kind of very basic common ground and it's helpful just to come back to that periodically as a kind of leveling you know where are we in relationship to that so when Prince Siddhartha really got it you know that this was a truth you know that this is actually something that he had to navigate then the next kind of thing that happened for him was he saw a person who was wearing robes and had an alms bow and had a shaven head and was on a quest for enlightenment And so before that point, he hadn't consciously, or at least that's the way the story goes, entertained the possibility of something other than the lifestyle that he was living, which was the lifestyle that was given according to the conditions. He was born into royalty, and uh, he was heir to the throne. He had a family. He had a wife and a child. And the circumstances of that just meant that he was going in this one particular direction. And then when he was impacted with the reality of birth, old age, sickness, and death, and then saw that there was a person who was actually looking towards another way, something other, or something that was beyond old age, sickness, and death, it was at that moment where his life really shifted, and he realized that no matter how much he had, that it was never going to answer these fundamental questions and that there might be a way in his quest for enlightenment that would. And so that spurred his interest to, to, to wander, to leave the palace, to renounce the privilege that he had, and to begin to the process of investigating or finding out what is beyond old age, sickness, and death. And so the story goes that he spent some time with two of the most accomplished uh, concentration masters of the day, and he attained to the level that they were at very quickly. So 
that's not a common experience for most of us, that we will hang out for a week with an accomplished meditation master and attain to the level that they're at. So obviously, the kind of spiritual powers that he had as a human being are different from the kind of (coughs) spiritual assets that many of us have. And yet, the basic principles are similar in terms of the kinds of investigation and the journey that a person needs to under, even though the time that it takes might be different. And so what he described after uh, spending time with these concentration masters was is that the same problems existed, you know. So even though the concentration that he realized was stuff that brings us into the most sublime experiences a human being can know, they were not lasting. They were conditioned. And they were dependent on concentration. And when the concentration shifted, the conditions shifted. And all of the same problems returned. And so he was interested in something that was not uh, time-bound or condition-bound. He was actually interested in something that was timeless, something that was a, a genuine, sustained, lasting answer to the questions that he had. So he continued, and as was the case of the day, they had these various different views, like we have various different views in our contemporary society about the where the problems were. And so in that society, they thought the problems were actually located in the body, and that if you somehow suppress the body, you would suppress the problems. And so they did ascetic practices that would probably make our stomachs turn, you know, because, you know, what they thought was appropriate practice for us, we would think, this is nuts, you know. And yet they pushed it to an absolute extreme, you know. So they were not eating very much, and they were, you know, spending hours and hours doing various different austere things and not sleeping very much. And and then at one point, you know, Siddhartha realized, well, for all of his efforts, the only thing that had happened is, is that his physical body was weaker, and it was actually weakening his mental capacity to be able to look where it needed to look in order to find the answer to his questions. So he said, this is not the way. So he was at that time practicing with five other ascetics, you know, and they were really disappointed in him because they were convinced that this ascetic thing was the thing, you know. So when he left to eat and to nourish himself and to find another way, you know, they they wrote him off as a kind of, you know, spiritual wimp and washout, you know. And, and so he had to go his own way because the culture that he was in with the five others that he was practicing with were committed to something that he intuitively knew was not right. And yet he didn't know exactly what was right. And I find that also interesting because it's often been the case in my own practice. You know, one door shuts and you're in this space and the other door hasn't opened up yet. And you have to navigate this kind of uncertainty of trusting that there is a way forward, but you're not sure what it is yet. So he left, but he didn't know what he was leaving for. He didn't know what the path was. He just knew that wasn't the right way. So then he was on his own. And, you know, he wandered for a while, and then there was an intuitive insight that came about something that had happened to him when he was a child, where he was watching his father, King Suodhana, plow a field, and his attention just rested in a natural awareness. So it was the natural awareness rather than the intensity of the concentration, which for him was a clue as to the way forward. And so he then was offered a, uh, a pile of straw 
and uh, milk rice, and so he was able to nourish himself a little bit more. And then at that point, it's like he'd had enough, and so he said, you know, this is it. You know, I'm going to sit here and crack this or forget it. And, you know, people hear this and they think, well, I'm going to do the same thing, you know. I'm going to sit here and crack this or forget it. And then, you know, oftentimes when that's the case, then whoever's the meditation teacher needs to scoop them up and friendly take them to the nice the psychiatric hospital. Because, you know, we don't have that kind of capacity to endure what is required to just sit there until the mind opens up and is completely free. And so what can happen for people when they make determinations that they're not equal to is is that they they impose on themselves levels of pain that they don't have the capacity to manage, and it causes the mind and body to split, which is a very different experience than waking up. (laughs) And anybody who's experienced that themselves or anybody who's been beside somebody who has experienced that knows that it looks rather different. You know, it's absolute, you know, some of the most extraordinary expressions of human pain and suffering come when the mind and body separate like that. So, but the Buddha had, or the Prince Siddhartha had, the capacity to do that. It wasn't that it was beyond his capacity. He wasn't overestimating himself. He actually had it. He said, I am going to sit here, and I'm going to crack this, and I don't care if my bones turn to dust and my blood dries up. It's like, I have had it. You know, I've done everything that I know to do, and I've tried everything I know to try. And if it doesn't shift now, it's curtains, you know? I'm just here until the duration. And I think for him, and I think that can happen for some of us sometimes, as we get to a place where we realize there's absolutely no turning back. You know, we have some kind of a clarity about a way forward, and that we have got to take that route no matter what the consequences are. And it's awesome when that does happen. It's actually quite a powerful turning point. So in his experience of sitting under the Bodhi tree in uh, Bodh Gaya in India, there were many things that arose for him, and some of the things that arose for him was the, the temptations. So the things that normally throw us off of our balance. And so, you know, what came was, you know, the temptations in the form of desire. And so for a young man, so he was 36 years old often, who has heterosexual orientation, young, that the kind of way that would manifest is with a voluptuous woman. So Mara, which is the personification of, of um, ignorance or illusion or, or confusion, sent these voluptuous women to tempt him, you know, to throw him off his seat and to get him completely confused and sideswiped. And certainly, you know, in the, in the throes of passion, in the midst of these kinds of intense feelings arising, one can understand how one can lose focus. <laughs> you know, one's priorities can shift, you know. And how one can get a sense that, wow, this is really compelling stuff, and if, you know, one wants that, yeah. And then what can also happen in a spiritual practice is that one can engage in battle with that, that that's the evil thing that one actually needs to fight. And so, you know, what is interesting about the Prince Siddhartha's response to these voluptuous and beautiful maidens of Mara was that he neither was... um, uh, engaged in battle or engaged in 
following. He could see it, and he didn't have to fight with it. And so that response of, I know you, Mara, which was neither uh, a, a suppression, a denial, or an, an engaging with battle, was the one thing that actually helped vanquish those maidens, so they left. And then the next thing that came was anger, ill will, resentment. And so again, you know, in this kind of a context, the way it's portrayed, or what happens for, in, or what, it was, a, you know, expressions of aggression that were outward and and uh, visible. And so again, you know, different people express anger or resentment differently. You know, and what I what I noticed living in a women's community for many years is the way women do anger is very different than the way men do anger. So men tend to duke it out, and then it's finished. And with women, it tends to be more like we poison the, the kind of sense of belonging that a person can relax into, you know. So it's not as if we have less anger. It's just that it manifests differently. So one of the things that's helpful in this particular story when we're looking at this, which is told from the perspective of a man, is to always translate it into what's actually relevant for us in our personal circumstances, because it will look differently. You know, how do we experience anger? Or as women, how do we experience desire? You know, how does it manifest? And and what gets us off balance? So that we're not only looking at it in terms of what works for men, but also what works, or what is our own personal relationship with that in our own experience. And again, the same thing. It was like he didn't have to defend, he didn't have to run, he didn't have to ex- run, you know, and he didn't have to engage in battle. You know, all this stuff was happening. It was just that I know you, Mara. And then, and then came doubt. And I, you know, as long as I've been practicing, I just really find this fascinating because, especially in our contemporary society, where we have a lot of much more um, appreciation of psychology, you know, I, I, I have never really fully appreciated that doubt is a human predicament rather than a, just a neurotic contemporary one, you know. But he experienced doubt, and the way it came was the doubt about whether or not, you know, he was worthy to be free from suffering. You know, who do you think you are to be free? And I know in my own journey and in in speaking with other people that sometimes that's not our doubt. You know, sometimes we have another doubt that's actually even more fundamental, and I have talked with people who don't really feel that they have a right to exist. You know, that's their doubt. And so what we need to do or what we need to be aware of is what is our fundamental doubt that we are working with? What is it? How does it manifest? And how do we feel it, experience it in our lives? And again, in this situation, he didn't have to engage in a battle with it. He just needed to say, I know you, Mara. But in this situation, what he did was he touched the earth. And so when you see the Buddha posture with one hand touching the earth, That is the mudra of invoking Gaia, the goddess of the earth, to bear witness to his accumulated um, merit that was then the testimony of his virtue and to why this was actually something that he was um, ready for or worthy of. And for me, the reason why I love that is because even in this situation or in the myth of this story, You know, it's not the Buddha pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. It's actually the witness of the earth and the way we have lived 
that is giving the mirror that gives the context for saying, yes, this is possible. And I also know from my own experience, you know, the way that I feel supported by the earth and the rocks and the way I feel supported by other friends who mirror my goodness when I don't see it or lose sight of it, that it's not only about my own loops in my own head and how it actually is influencing the decisions I make, but it is the capacity to receive the reflection from friends and people and nature around that has supported me to be able to do what I do because I don't always have it within my own thinking to do it myself. And I find it humbling as well as awe-inspiring that that's also true in the Buddhist story. So what happened in that opening was is that the mind opened to see things the way they were. There was no more confusion. There was no more sense of a separate sense of self. And when that happened ignorance was vanquished and so you know there's a quote and I can't remember it exactly but it's something like house builder you know your rafters are broken there will be no more and so it's like there's a sense of something is finished and it's not maybe it's like I know this is finished So he spent the next six weeks in Bodh Gaya reflecting on the causes and effects of what had given rise to that, um, reflecting on the causes and conditions of past lives, and reflecting on um, the causes and conditions that causes the cycle of suffering and how it releases, and his gratitude for everything that had supported him to be able to come to that possibility of waking up. He just stayed there in a state of bliss and a state of gratitude reflecting on all of this. And then afterwards he thought, well, you know, I don't know if anyone's going to get it. You know, this stuff is actually a little bit subtle. And I don't know if anyone is actually going to figure it out. And so again, the myth is is that Brahma Sahampati came from the heavenly realms and said, yes, but for those who have but little dust in their eyes, please teach. And so he said, okay. And so then he started out on his journey trying to think, well, who can I go and talk to? And so he thought about the first two meditation teachers, but in his vision of being able to see, he could see that they had already died and passed on. So then he went to the five ascetics that he'd been practicing with. And on the way there, he met a person who said, well, who are you? You know, And he said, I am the all-enlightened one. And the guy said, well, good luck on you. See you later. <laughs> And the Buddha was a little bit of a quick learner, and so he realized that actually that's not helpful. And so what what happens is is that from that point on, he never it describes himself in those kinds of terms. What he does is he talks about the path of what's needed to wake up and what prevents you from doing that. So, you know, um, that he, he had one interaction with one person, and then his teaching style shifted. So when he got to the five ascetics, you know, they did not want to be friendly to him because they thought, you know, what he had done was the wrong thing, that he'd gone the wrong way, and that he was a spiritual washout. But his radiance and his peacefulness and his contentment and his presence made it that in spite of themselves, they set him up a seat and they gave him some water and they sat around him and they wanted to hear what he had to hear say. And that was when he delivered the Discourse on the Four Noble Truths. So the Discourse on the Four Noble Truths 
is his essential teachings, and that's something that's held in common with all of the Buddhist traditions. And what he's saying is, is that there's a pathway which is a middle path between extremes, between indulgence and between self-mortification. And he says that in this pathway is the way in which we need to practice. And then within that, what we can know in our human experience is, is that there is suffering. So we can see suffering in birth. We can see suffering in sickness. We can see suffering in getting older. And we can see suffering in death. We can see suffering in not having what we want. And we can see suffering in being separated from what we loved. And so in contemplating what it is to be human and having a physical body that requires this kind of um, engagement and support and sustaining, there is suffering in being alive. And as we are able to see the suffering, then it can help us focus on the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering. So in our contemporary society, our orientation is focused outward. Everything's out. It's their fault. It's the weather's fault. It's the government's fault. It's the society. It's the, you know, it's this, that, and the next thing. And in a contemplative way, it's to turn the focus inward and to say, what is the cause of suffering that's here? Not there. You know, what's here? So anytime we are looking at suffering, what we're looking at is the desire for things to be different than the way that they are. So then when we look at pain of birth, when we look at the pain of aging, of sickness, when we look at the pain of death, the pain of it is, is there's a one element which is pain, and there's the other element which is the suffering because of the pain. And the suffering because of the pain is the not wanting it to be that way. It's the wanting it to be otherwise. And when we can begin to see that wanting it to be otherwise then we are focused on the cause of suffering. Not the conditions that gave rise to the pain, but the suffering, which is the reactive response to that which is happening. That is key. Because right there, right exactly there, is where we find the cessation of suffering. So, many of us have things that happen that we don't have control over in terms of what happens in our health, what happens with our energies, what happens with our energy, you know, our sense of whether we have the capacity to do something or not the capacity to do something. And yet the level of suffering around it is what we make on top of it. So we have choices about how we influence it and the medicines that we take and the exercise that we do and the way that we eat and the way that we think. Those are choices that we make. And we also can learn to differentiate between the actual thing that's happening and the reaction to it. And when we see the reaction to it, then that is the place where we can begin to start pulling away the things or the mechanisms or the thinking processes that are contributing to a suffering around something rather than a peacefulness with it. That is huge absolutely huge because whether we have the medicine to make our bodies do what we want them to do or whether we have the skills or the techniques or the energy or the healing is questionable 
I mean, even in this society that's got such fancy medicine with such fancy insurance prices, it's questionable. But what we can always do is come back to the way we are relating to it. Am I wanting this not to be that way? Am I holding out for the hope that it's going to change? And so that ends up being quite an interesting conversation when we negotiate what it's like when we actually do have significant illnesses of how to make effort without adding suffering when it's not changing. How to hold open the space for healing without being invested in the desire for it to be different. And so then, you know, what is needed is the path that supports the ability to be able to live this way and do this. And so the fourth noble truth is, is that there's a path that supports the end of suffering. And that path is not a mystical path. It's actually very grounded in terms of the way we think, the views that we have, the kind of ways that we live, the actions that we have and how we practice with what is arising. So in this tradition, meditation is essential for learning what is actually happening in our mind and the way we are relating to it. And meditation itself is a whole thing to pick up and learn if one is interested in being able to differentiate and dismantle the difference between the reaction on top of something and the thing itself. And so meditation is, is a kind of bottom ground or foundation that is encouraged or supported as part of the contemplative life if one is genuinely sincere about wanting to understand what is suffering and the end of suffering. How does one live with more peace and more joy? Because many of us can write on a piece of paper how we think it should be, you know, in terms of what we think we should do and how we should live and how we should relate to the world. But what we have to navigate is how we actually feel about things, which is not something that we can control. So when we understand how to bring attention to our mind-body process and bring balance to the things that need balance, then that is a very enormous support. When we understand the relationship between having a spiritual community of like-minded people and living with integrity and generosity and how that gives a context for doing this work. That's enormous support. But no matter how gifted we are and skilled we are at developing skillful conditions, as long as we are invested in skillful conditions, there's a limit to how much we can do that. Because the nature is is that our bodies get older and get sick and die, and that as we are dying, or as that process is unfolding, No matter how much we've set up in terms of wholesome, skillful conditions in our life, we are moving into something which is fundamentally out of control. And if we don't have a way of relaxing into something that accepts that which is out of control, then we are in a position where our sense of practice either is is that we failed or that the practice has failed. Because it cannot accept or embrace or deal with that. And so it has got to be from the very beginning that meditation includes dealing with that which is out of control. Not with an effort to try and bring it back into control, but as a recognition of that's just the way it is. 
and that there's something that can be found which is still and steady even when you know you're dealing with stuff which is just really strong and out of control so these two things bringing balance into the conditions that we have so that we have more sense of ground more sense of skill more sense of capacity and learning to rest attention into that which is not dependent on conditions being a particular way then ends up being the kind of two sides of what meditation entails. And that then expresses itself in the way that we live, in terms of the choices that we make and the things that we do and the way that we um, live. Because when there's a commitment not to cause suffering or to understand suffering, then it's very natural that one moves towards the direction of what supports that and moves away from what doesn't. So the Four Noble Truths then creates this context where the Buddha is teaching about something which is not talked about in other other, um, spiritual traditions. It's not been phrased in this kind of a language. when we are understanding the mechanisms of suffering and really start pulling it apart, there's a few other aspects of the teachings that come into view that are not also apparent in the other traditions. And that's the teachings of uh, anatta, or not-self. The teachings of impermanence and the teachings of suffering, that's pretty universal, you know. You know, even even it's not only human beings across the world will have an understanding of what suffering is and what changes, but we can see that also in the animal realm, that animals, you know, want or respond to friendliness and kindness and, you know, feel sad when something shifts. I mean, if you've seen a, a mother grieve the loss of a, of a newborn um, animal, you know, they... They feel it, and they they know the shift when it changes. So, in a kind of a nutshell, this is an introduction of the context of what the Buddha's teachings are about and um, some sense of the Four Noble Truths. And then what I'll talk about next week and then on the Sala Puja is how to actually work with this in terms of one's own practice. Okay? So, maybe enough for now. We can have a break and have some tea. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.